morning. The time that you have allotted for us to come into your house for worship. Help us worship you today in spirit and in truth. And, oh, God, may your Holy Spirit permeate our hearts and our minds. May we shut off the distractions from the world. May we shut off in our minds CNN, ABC, CBS, Fox News. And may we turn, tune into your word, the only word that gives life. Free us, God, now from all distractions. Turn our attention attentively to your word. Help us to glorify your name and bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me again to Acts chapter 15. We are preaching our way through the book of Acts. And if you want to do some preparatory reading for next week's sermon, you can begin with verse 6 and go through verse 21 of Acts chapter 15. And next week, God wills, we'll be talking about the Jerusalem Council, which was the first church council. But today we want to look at Acts chapter 15. I want to read just a couple verses that were read, read previously. Verses 1 and 2, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. I want to preach today from the subject, God's grace really is amazing. God's grace really is amazing. Everybody say amazing grace. Amazing grace. Last week, we left Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, you remember, where they had just completed the first missionary trip. What a great trip it had been through the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, uh, the preaching and teaching of the good news, the preaching and teaching of the proclamation of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, many people, namely Gentiles, had come to Jesus in faith. Many, many Gentiles got saved on that first missionary journey. The Gentiles were people who had been locked out, if you will, who had not been accepted in, in Jewish circles, but now they are saved. They are Christians. They are in the family of God. That means they believe the gospel. They the good news that Jesus suffered, bled, and died and rose uh, from the grave. They, they believe that, that Jesus paid their sin debt on the cross in full at Calvary. They believe that they were free now from the penalty of their sins, which was uh, eternity in hell, separated from God. Oh, what a joyful experience the Gentiles were having. The Antioch church family rejoiced hearing victory after victory as Paul and Barnabas told them of all of the wonderful things that had happened on their first missionary journey. They told about how God had uh, put down their enemies, how God had blessed their efforts, and how God had added many souls to the kingdom. You know, one of the things missionaries enjoy doing is coming home on what's known as furlough. And we've had missionaries come here, Jim and Sharon Kirk. They love coming here from North Africa. They love uh, telling 
the, the telling the supporting churches, those of us who support them prayerfully and financially about all of the great things that God is doing through their ministries. And all over the world, missionaries enjoy going to their supporting churches and just talking about all of the great things that God is doing through their work on the mission field. In fact, back in 2016, when our Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church missions team returned from Haiti, there was great joy in our church. Don't y'all remember that? As the mission team began to share how God had used them to push back the darkness and usher in the light and how God had used them to feed, uh, you know, a large number of children and the medical team did their work and our nurses did their work and we shared the gospel. It was a beautiful experience. The mission team shared that. The church was thrilled because although only a small percentage of Good Hope members actually set foot on the ground in Haiti, most of our membership supported the mission effort through your constant prayers, the giving of finances, and clothing and medical supplies that we took to Haiti with us. So in actuality, as the team kept conveying to our church family doing the reports that the mission trip to Haiti was a church-wide team effort. Yesterday for two hours, a little over two hours, women from our church gathered uh, to put together gift bags containing crosses and beads and, and, and necklaces to be used by over 1,000 children in Uganda. 1,000 children, over 1,000 children will put these beads together and put these crosses uh, on this necklace together during their uh, Christmas celebration. God willing, Sister Pick and I will travel to Uganda bearing these precious gifts, and we'll be able to say that they came from the Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church family. These gifts will be used at crafts during a Sunday school to tell the story of how much Jesus loves, get this, all the children of the world, not just children in America, but children in Haiti and children in Africa and children in all underdeveloped countries of the world, those necklaces will tell the story. And presently now, you heard the announcement earlier, a missions team is preparing to go to Uganda in June 2019. While visiting Uganda, they will lay eyes on the first well built in Uganda by Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church. You'll see that. Mission stories are wonderful, and God uses them to change churches because people are excited. Mission stories supercharge churches because now the church is engaged and more talking more about the color of the carpet and the pews and the bulletins and the type of music we like and whether it's too hot or too cold we get beyond that we began to talk about the real essentialities of ministry 
And those things supercharge us. How many people uh, get supercharged because of mission reports? Well, that's what was happening in our text, in the text, Acts chapter 14, 26 and 27, where Luke records, from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended. In other words, Paul and Barnabas was headed back from their first mission team. They went back to Antioch, the church that had sent them out, where the church commended them, the church congratulated them, the church celebrated them, and the church applauded all that they had been doing, all that God had done through them in missions. So when they reported, of course, the church applauded even more when they found out that God had opened the door for the Gentiles to be saved. Wonderful time, right? Wonderful celebration, right? Wonderful feelings of accomplishments, right? The evangelism was exploding. The people were hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, and being saved. Discipleship was advancing with people excited and learning about being more like Jesus through the teaching of Paul and Barnabas. The mission movement was exhilarating and church members were filled with enthusiasm because the gospel was reaching, get this, across racial boundaries, across cultural boundaries, across economic boundaries, and it was reaching even across religious boundaries because now Jews and Gentiles were talking. As a result of the church, as a result, the church of Jesus Christ was growing, and it was spreading rapidly. It was spreading out from Jerusalem, as Jesus had said, to Judea. It was, it was spreading over to Antioch, and Jesus said it was, it was spread to the innermost parts, the outermost parts of the world. It had begun to spread. Things were going well. In fact, Bible commentary R. Ken Hughes wrote, and I quote, things were going too well for the enemy's taste and the inevitable get this the inevitable that meant it was coming just a matter of time the inevitable satanic counterattack soon came end quote what did the satanic counterattack on the success of the church look like well look at today's text chapter 15 verse 1 reveals the answer and certain men came down from Judea and taught brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. In the midst of all of that celebration, in the midst of all of that excitement, that joy, men came, the Bible says, certain men came from Judea, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the laws of Moses, you, underscore, in no uncertain terms, you, regardless of Paul, what Paul and Barnabas are telling you, you cannot be saved. Did you get that? Certain men. And I, I checked it out. I checked the research out. They traveled, y'all, three hundred miles from Judea 
to Antioch, 300 miles to unleash false teachings in the church. 300 miles. These men known as Judaizers in verse 1 insisted that faith in Jesus Christ alone was not enough for people to be saved. But that salvation came through believing in Jesus Christ plus something else. The something else they added to the salvation process, as stated in verse 1, was unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be in the family of God. Their idea was Jesus plus something. Jesus plus ritual, Jesus plus ceremony, Jesus plus work of human or human effort, Jesus plus something physical, specifically in the text, Jesus plus circumcision. Now let's go deeper and look at the mistaken belief and unsound argument of the Judaizers. Before Christ, circumcision had been the physical sign that a man was a follower of the true God. It was the sign that a man believed the promises that God had made to Abraham in Israel, the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign. Genesis 17, 10 through 14. However, God never intended circumcision to have any value other than being a sign. It was not meant to bring righteousness to anyone. Circumcision did not make anyone righteous. Not even Abraham. Romans 4, 9 and 10. Circumcision was given, underscore this, only as a sign of the faith that a man already had God's promises in his heart. That a man already had believed God's promises in his heart. The righteousness of God was accredited to a man because he believed God's promises, not because he was circumcised. Let me say that again. The righteousness of God was a credit to man, to a man because he believed God's promises. Then he was circumcised as a sign of his faith in God. Romans 14, 11 and 12 clearly states this was the case with Abraham. However, many abused God's purpose for circumcision, making it a substitute for true righteousness. Still others use circumcision, get this, as a way to divide and put people into categories. A great wall of division was thrown up around the uncircumcised. An uncircumcised man, an uncircumcised man was thought to be cut off from God and from the people of God. As a result, God was thought to love only Israel who was circumcised while rejecting the nations of Gentiles who were not. You see the schism? 
So it was with these thoughts lodged deep within their hearts and in their minds, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, that is, taught the Gentiles, taught the new Christians, teaching in the church that unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, Paul and Barnabas were not about to give in to this doctrine, to this teaching, because they knew the truth which had set them free as well as the truth that had set the Gentiles free. The Judaizers were dug in deep. They were holding fast to their position. So it was the Antioch church leaders wisely determined that Paul and Barnabas, along with other certain Other leaders were to go to Jerusalem in order to question the apostles and the elders about the matter. You see, the apostles had been with Jesus. The elders had been trained by the apostles. If anybody would know, they would know, and they wanted it to be substantiated from men who had been with Jesus. So, here in this text, we find the Judaizers and all other religious legalists missing the mark. Missing the mark. For God had done away with circumcision as a sign of righteousness since Jesus had come. Righteousness is now on the heart and in the spirit, not in the letter of rules and regulations. So you see Paul and Barnabas preached and taught the truth of God's word which is you are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross plus nothing. Paul and Barnabas were adamant. Nothing can be added to salvation and nothing can be taken away from salvation. Jesus completed the process, paying the sin debt in full on the cross for everyone who received him by faith. This was an act of God plus nothing. So herein lies the disagreement, the dissension, the discord between Paul, Barnabas, and the Judaizers. You see, the Judaizers again taught that Jesus plus something equaled salvation. They taught it was Jesus plus ritual. It was Jesus plus the ceremonies. It was Jesus plus the law of Moses. Jesus plus the flesh. More specifically, Jesus plus circumcision. To which Paul and Barnabas would vigorously Object saying the way of salvation is through Jesus alone. In verse 2, verse 2 tells us that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. Why? The reason was clear. Should this heresy, should this false teaching, Should this deviation from the truth of the gospel go uncorrected, it would have reduced the church to nothing more than a group of people struggling struggling 
unsuccessfully, I might add, to follow a set of rules, regulations, and guidelines and laws. Thus sending the deadly message to the Gentiles and to everyone else that Jesus Christ, God's own son, Messiah, was just not enough. The message would have been to all who heard it, Calvary is a host. And that God needed help from human beings to complete the work of saving his people. In addition to that, this heresy, if this doctrine would have been allowed to continue, it would have bred confusion among the Gentiles who had been told by Paul and Barnabas that they were saved, totally accepted into the family of God, based solely upon the sacrificial death of Jesus upon the cross of Calvary. That's what they were told that Jesus suffered and bled and died, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe in Jesus, they were told you will be saved. Now, to be told, ah, wait a minute. There's one more thing or there are some more things you must do in order to complete your salvation process. To hear that kind of message after the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, to hear that would have been confusing and discouraging to the multitudes of Gentile believers who had just come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, let me make it a little more personal. It would be like you accepting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. On a Sunday morning, it's Lord's Day, and you walk down the aisle. Some of y'all remember that, don't you? Some of y'all remember the day that you made your public profession of faith. You came down the aisle and you said with your lips or by your walking that I am receiving Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm repenting of my sins. I'm turning away from the world. All of the wicked and evil things that I've done, I am asking for God for his forgiveness. I'm turning away and now I'm turning to Christ. I'm turning my back on sin. I'm turning my face to Christ, the world behind me, the cross before me. Some of y'all remember that, don't you? For me, as a matter of fact, it happened during the course of the week. I'd made up my mind, but I couldn't wait for the pastor to give the invitation on Sunday. I don't even remember to this day what he preached about because my mind was already made up. I walked down the aisle at Jehovah Missionary Baptist Church, and I said to the congregation, at the tender age of 19, I now belong to Jesus. I'm turning my back on the world. I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. 
Well, it'd be like accepting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, walking down the aisle on Sunday morning, making your public profession of faith in Jesus in the presence of your family and your friends, and you're all excited, and the church is excited, and your family are excited, and you call your, your friends and your family members, and they're excited. Guess what I did today? I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Then comes Monday morning. And while at work or school, you're still very excited because of your newfound life in Christ. You feel it all over. You feel fresh and clean, and you see life through a different set of eyes. Your morals, your values, your ethics have changed. You're excited. So you begin sharing your joy and your enthusiasm with your classmates if you're in school or your coworkers if you're at work, only to have someone pull you to the side and say, what you did Sunday was good, but there's more to it than that. Has anyone ever experienced that? There's more to it than that. And then they go on to say, in order to really be saved, in order to really make it right with God, you must attend our church. Because we are the only ones that have it right. We know what we're doing. Everybody else is wrong. The church in Jerusalem is wrong. The church in Antioch is wrong. Paul and Barnabas is wrong. And even Jesus in John 3, 16 is wrong when he said, Whosoever believeth in him plus nothing shall be saved. But we have it right. In order for you to complete your salvation, you must attend our church or you must agree with how we practice our faith. Or you must worship on a certain day. You've heard that one, haven't you? Or you must eat a certain diet. Or you must speak in tongues. Or you must shout and dance at worship in order to make sure that your salvation is validated. You must shout and dance at some point in worship. I'm telling you, there is more according to the Judaizers. There's always more. Or you must be baptized in water. Now, sure enough, when you are saved, there is a commandment to be baptized, but water baptism, like circumcision, has never saved anyone. We had a saying back when I was growing up. He went down a dry center and came up a wet one. That means that nothing has changed. There are people sitting in churches all across America. Some have been sitting there 30 and 40 and 50 years and have never been saved. I know what I'm talking about. I've seen it happen. I've seen seen a person come down the aisle. You would have thought that they were saved years ago. They've been in church all of their lives. Yet when I read the card, it said, humbly coming to receive Jesus Christ 
as Lord and Savior. So the Judaizers say, you must, be, you must be baptized. Well, so much for the thief on the cross when Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm sure had he had an opportunity to come down from the cross to be baptized, he would have gladly done it. But his that time and his hour was numbered. So you must be baptized or you must, you must, you must, says the Judaizer. So Paul and Barnabas took serious issues with that type of erroneous thinking and teaching. In fact, in verse 2 states, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no, underscore again, small dissension and dispute, dispute with them. No small dissension. This was a major issue. Paul and Barnabas were to correct it, and so were the apostles. The next week, we'll continue this story. But today, suffice it to say, as did Paul in Ephesians 2 and 8, for by grace, did you get that? Not by works. For by grace, not by anything that you and I can do, for by grace, not by somebody putting their stamp of approval on your salvation as the Judaizers sought to do. For by grace, that's God's amazing grace, you have been saved through faith in Jesus that not of yourselves, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is nothing you and I can do or ever have done to save ourselves. It's all about God's amazing grace who sent his son down 42 generations, his sinless son, the sinless lamb of God, to hang on the cross and die for our sins plus nothing. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. I dare not boast in my education, my theological degrees. I dare not boast in the almost 41 years I've been preaching. I dare not boast in any good works that I have done, the mission trips I've been on, the people I've led to Christ, I dare not boast except for in Christ alone. I dare not boast except in the amazing grace of God. So that, my brothers and sisters, is the takeaway. God's grace really is amazing. John 3, 16, circle your wagons there because that is the anthem, that is the epitome, that is the citadel of God's amazing grace. Nothing to be added, nothing to be taken away. Don't fear, just know God's grace got you. 
Oh, thank God today for his marvelous grace. And in the words of one hymnologist, I'll close. Marvelous grace of our loving God. Grace that exceeds our sin and guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. 